Well, good evening, everyone. Vice-Chancellor, proctors, ladies and gentlemen. I'm obliged to give you the housekeeping rules that tell us that should the fire alarms be activated, the event will end and the building will be evacuated and we should go down the stairs to the quad. And that is the evacuation point. So, on behalf of the Cyril Foster Committee, I'm very pleased to welcome you to our 2017 Cyril Foster Lecture. And before inviting the Vice-Chancellor to introduce our speaker, I just want to say a few words about the lecture itself and its origins. The Cyril Foster Lecture is the university's principal annual guest lecturer in the field of international relations. It was established in 1958 when Oxford University accepted the bequest from the estate of a Mr. Cyril A. Foster, a man who had made his money in the confectionery business. Mr. Foster's wishes in respect to the bequest were quite specific, though open to a range of interpretations. He requested that the university, and I quote, should arrange for a prominent and sincere speaker to deliver once every year a lecture to be known as the Cyril Foster Lecture, and that the lecture should deal with the elimination of war and a better understanding of the nations of the world. Over the years, the lecture has attracted a long and distinguished group of speakers, including senior academics and policymakers from all around the world, all of whom have addressed these core concerns from a variety of perspectives, whether combating poverty, promoting economic development, preventing war, building peace and security, or strengthening international organization. And as I'm sure you will agree, our distinguished speaker tonight firmly falls into this plural tradition. And I'm very pleased that our Vice-Chancellor, Professor Louise Richardson, is here to introduce him to you all. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. Well, good evening and warm welcome to everyone. I'm absolutely delighted to have this chance to introduce you to our speaker for this, this year's Cyril Foster Lecture, which, as you've just heard, is the uh, most significant annual lecture in the field of international relations, which has attracted an extraordinary group of previous speakers, including our very own Chancellor, Lord Patton, um, the G Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, and the President of, of Portugal, uh, Fernando Enrico Cardoso. Um, and certainly our speaker this evening is not only prominent and sincere, as per the, per the request, but indeed very eminent. Uh, Sir Lawrence Friedman is Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College in London. Uh, Laurie served as head of the School of Social Science and Public Policy and Vice Principal before retiring in, in 2014. And since then, we have been delighted to welcome him to Oxford as a visiting professor at the Blavatnik School. He was educated at Whiteley Bay Grammar School and the Universities of Manchester, York, and indeed Oxford. And certainly no stranger to Oxford, his wife Judith is a fellow of Worcester College and a professor of taxation law. Before joining King's, Laurie held research appointments at Nuffield, at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Throughout the course of his remarkably distinguished career, he has written extensively on nuclear strategy and the Cold War, as well as contributing regularly on contemporary security issues. In June 2009, he was appointed to serve as a member of the official inquiry into Britain and the Iraq War, 
better known as the Chilcot Inquiry, whose findings were finally published in July 2016. His publications include Kennedy's Wars, Berlin, Cuba, Laos, and Vietnam, The Evolution of Nuclear Strategy, Deterrence, and the two-volume official history of the Falklands campaign. He was appointed the official historian of the Falklands campaign. His book, A Choice of Enemies, America Confronts the Middle East, won the 2009 Lionel Gelbert Prize and the Duke of Westminster Medal for Military Literature. His most recent book, Strategy of History, was awarded the Mackenzie Book Prize by the Political Science Association. Sir Lawrence's myriad contributions have been widely recognized by, for example, the Chesney Gold Medal from Rusi, marking a lifelong distinguished contribution in the defense and international security fields. Other awards include a Distinguished Scholar Award from the ISA and the George Bell Award for Strategic Studies Leadership from the Canadian International Council. He was elected a Fellow of the British Academy in 1995, awarded the CBE in 1996, and in 2003, he was awarded the KCMG, Knight Commander of St. Michael and St. George. We're absolutely delighted that you're here with us this evening, Laurie, so please join me in welcoming Sir Lawrence Friedman to deliver the 2017 Cyril Foster Lecture. Thanks very much. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. Uh, it's very good to be here. This, this room still makes me feel a little alarmed, but it's always nice to be, have a chance to give a lecture in it. Um, to avoid disappointment, I should confess from the start that this lecture will bear very little resemblance to the many pieces Dr. Hunter S. Thompson wrote under the general heading of Fear and Loathing. Uh, it's not an experiment to see what the field might look like under the influence of hallucinatory drugs, nor is it an attempt to establish a form of gonzo scholarship in which fact, fiction, and fantastical autobiography are intermingled. Actually, we have enough of that already. Uh, but to allow some link uh, with this, uh, I will open with a section from Thompson's original Rolling Stone essay, in which he captures the zeitgeist of San Francisco in the late 1960s uh, and then notes its passing. History is hard to know, he wrote, because of all the hired bullshit. But even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then the energy of a whole generation comes to a head uh, in a long, fine flash for reasons that nobody really understands at the time and which never explain, in retrospect, what actually happened. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle, that sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a long and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high watermark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. This is a moment when it can be tempting to describe history in terms of the motion of waves. We sense the 
ebb and flow uh, of political tides. One wave has had its surge and has rolled back. Another wave, more threatening and ominous, now surges forward in its place. It was not that long ago, as the Arab Spring was being celebrated, that there was much talk of the right side of history, as if history were still essentially progressive. The recent shocks, not least the election of President Trump, remind us that nothing should ever be taken for granted about the durability of political norms or assumptions made about the underlying direction of events. Expectations created not so long ago now seem unrealistic and, looking back, always doomed to end in disappointment. As we fret about populism and the challenges to the liberal order, which has served my generation so well, we can speculate about what happened to the globalization that offered such apparent promise in the 1990s when liberal democracy was on the crest of its own high and beautiful wave and, war, and was going to spread without much effort on our part as new markets opened up to the free flow of trade, capital, people and ideas. Perhaps this was always hopelessly unrealistic. Too insensitive to distinctive traditions and cultures and persistent nationalism. Too dismissive of the possibility of combining impressive economic growth with authoritarian rule. Too unrealistic about the intractability of disputes that seemed ripe for settlements. Too unaware of Western hubris and exaggerated ambition. The moment before the 2008 financial crisis probably represents our high watermark, although much of the blame for the current disappointments also tends to be assigned to two inconclusive and often painful military interventions. References to Iraq and Afghanistan have become shorthands for what happens when misguided elites fail to appreciate either the limits of their power or the complexities of the societies in which they have chosen to test their power. This is something that has been preoccupying me for a number of years now, not least because of my involvement in the Iraq inquiry. I don't want to use this occasion to go over ground fully covered in the report. I'm sure you've all had a chance to read the two and a half million words. Uh, 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 but given the remit of the Cyril Foster lecture, I want instead to consider something that was not part of the remit of the inquiry, but is connected. Has our field of international relations also been found wanting as we struggle to understand current forms of conflict. In asking this question, my objective is certainly not to criticize specialists in Iraq and the Arab world or in counterinsurgency and state building, many of whom were prescient about the problems that would be faced in these interventions. The question I want to address is whether international relations as a field can cope with the nature of contemporary conflict, especially those conflicts in which the wellsprings of violence seem to be visceral and angry, prompting murderous and even suicidal activity, full, if you will, of fear and loathing. The Cyril Foster lecture is intended to promote, quote, the elimination of war and the better understanding of the nations of the world. The bequest fully reflects the original inspiration behind the discipline of international relations, born in the aftermath of the First World War. The same inspiration was behind the first department of international relations at Aberystwyth, and the chair there named in honour of Woodrow Wilson. International relations was a project designed to support the League of Nations, 
helping further its busy agenda, including arbitrating disputes, promoting disarmament, and exploring the meaning of self-determination. All of these were seen as potential contributors to the elimination of war, but they all require technical expertise as well as a more scientific understanding of the world. The aim of this great peace project was to challenge the continuing hold of militarism and nationalism on government. Somehow political leaders needed to be encouraged to see the possibilities for a more orderly and harmonious world if only the foolishness of arms races and territorial disputes could be conclusively demonstrated. That is what the new science of international relations was expected to accomplish. With the starting assumption that assumed it to be wicked, wasteful, and without any useful purpose, war was always going to be difficult to explain, except as a form of malignant foolishness. The difficulty this created in developing actual policies was captured, I think, in Keynes's assessment of Bertrand Russell. Bertie, he reported, sustained simultaneously a pair of opinions ludicrously incompatible. He held that, in fact, human affairs were carried on after a most irrational fashion, but that the remedy was quite simple and easy, since all we had to do was carry them on rationally. A discussion of practical affairs on these lines was really very boring. As the Second World War began, it was the then holder of the Woodrow Wilson chair at Aberystwyth, E.H. Uh, e. Carr, who explained how the passionate desire to prevent war determined the whole initial course and direction of the study and pushed the infant science of international politics into something that was markedly and frankly utopian. Carl warned against an unwarranted belief in progress as if humankind was bound to improve its forms of government, a disregard of factors of power and the attempt to, quote, base international morality on an alleged harmony of interest which identifies the interest of the whole community of nations with the interest of each individual member of it. While Carr never quite described himself as a realist, this demand for an unrelenting focus on issues of power and interest came to be associated with the realist school. Arguably, the realism of the Cold War years was more successful than the idealism of the interwar years in preventing major war. It is now 30 years since John Gaddis first referred to the long peace to mark the period since 1945. So this period has now lasted over 70 years. Now this hardly, of course, amounts to the abolition of war. The only type of war that has really been absent has been the sort of grinding, total, uncontainable, no-holds-barred, calamitous trial of strength that the world suffered twice during the first half of the last century. Other than that, over this period, the world has seen, and still sees, some terrible violence. Yet this is an achievement that should not be uh, taken for granted. There are a number of reasons for the long peace, uh, but among them it's hard to dismiss the shared fear of nuclear war, of mutual assured destruction as a factor. Deterrence has worked because of what has been called the crystal ball effect, the knowledge of exactly how bad a future war could be. So this has been a sort of realist peace, dependent on prudent assessments of the catastrophic consequences of any prospective war, as much as a desire not to offend against the Charter of the United Nations. While the Cold War stayed cold because of the shared fear that a hot war would go nuclear, 
There was another process at work which also had a profound influence on the character of contemporary conflict. Decolonization um, brought into being many new states, some in a fragile condition from the start. The process concluded with the end of the Portuguese Empire in 1974, although in terms of the breakup of multinational entities, it continued with the fragmentation of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia in the 1990s. The whole process is captured by the observation that there were 51 founding members of the United Nations in 1945, and now there are 193. The origins of many recent and current wars lie in the ways that this process was handled. There were the contested partitions of the late 1940s that led to the series of wars, which may not yet be concluded, between Israel and the Arabs and between India and Pakistan. In addition, there were the civil wars. Their incidents in part explained but because the norm of fixed borders contained conflicts within states. It remains the case that interstate wars are the most dangerous and carry the greatest dangers of escalation. But civil wars are far more common and often extremely deadly. They come in many shapes and sizes, but those of recent decades tend to look different from those that went before. Their most important feature is that they are rarely resolved by battle, and even when some sort of ceasefire or settlement is arranged, these tend not to last. So these are wars which drag on, and therefore not only result in awful levels of casualties, but do enormous damage to social and economic structures. The cost in human life is as likely to be in the resultant poverty, famine and disease as direct battle deaths. These conflicts are often not easily contained, even within recognised borders. Just as so-called interstate wars often involve attempts to stir up differences within the enemy state to distract and subvert them, with civil wars, neighbours get drawn in because one of the warring sides is a client or an ally or just because they need to protect their own interests. With many current wars, it's best to view them as an interconnected and cross-current a cross-cutting set of conflicts associated with a particular region as much as confined to an individual state. This has been true for some time in sub-Saharan Africa and is now the case in the Middle East. Keep in mind also that some of the world's most vicious conflicts are not even categorised as civil wars because they don't actually involve the state itself and they don't require armies or even really militias. Battle accounts for only a moderate percentage of the annual tally of violent deaths, some 17% of the total between 2010 and 2015. Look at many Latin American and Caribbean cities. Uh, they're not, strictly speaking, at war, but they do suffer intensely from drugs-related gang warfare with murder rates compatible, comparable with those experienced in civil wars. And with civil wars, at any time since 1980, uh, anything between 15 and 25 countries have been suffering from them, and they're about five times as likely to occur as interstate wars. Now, this creates a rather daunting task for those concerned to find ways to abolish war. The sheer variety and complexity, along with forms of in other forms of intercommunal violence, makes it hard to be optimistic about any grand schemes for universal peace. And at a more mundane level, 
challenges any attempt to generalise in order to offer prescriptions about how to manage them. In the 1990s, as interstate war seemed to be far less of a problem with the end of the Cold War, and attention turned to civil wars, a common lament was the lack of good theory. In 1933, the German commentator Hans Magnus Enzenberger observed that there was no useful theory of civil war. 24 years later, David Armitage is still reporting that these conflicts, though more common than those between states, lasting longer and afflicting more people, represent an impoverished area of inquiry. To be fair, the work on civil wars is much richer now than it was in the 1990s, but it did take time for serious study to get underway, and it always seems to be trying to catch up with actual political developments. In 1994, the economist Jack Hirchlefer observed how little attention economists had paid to what he called the dark side of human affairs, of conflict, crime, revolution and warfare. There was, he enthused, a whole intellectual continent to be discovered. Those economists exploring this continent, he added, will encounter a number of native tribes, historians, sociologists, psychologists, philosophers, etc., who in their various intellectually primitive ways have preceded us in reconnoitering the dark side of human activity. Betraying something of the imperial tendencies of economics, he confidently anticipated that these atheoretical aborigines would soon be brushed aside. Note that the tribe he did not mention as likely to be exploring this dark side of human affairs was that of international relations or even political science. Why was that? The obvious reason was that the established realist theory of international relations showed no interest in the sort of states most prone to civil war. As I shall show, there's no reason why the realist preoccupations with power and interest cannot be applied to these wars. Yet instead of classic realism as a sort of intellectual temper, a desire to understand the world as it is, rather than how one would like it to be, the neo-realist school sought to develop a theory with clear propositions about what made for stability in great power relations. They focused on such matters as whether states are really power-maximizing or security-maximizing, about the comparative merits of balancing an ascendant power in alliance with others, or bandwagoning, aligning with its strength, and whether the, poles, the more poles of power, the more stability. These propositions were all based on a limited number of cases, many from before the First World War, and were of little help once the Cold War went away. They were also solely based on major powers. These were the states that set the terms for the rest of the system. It would be ridiculous to construct a theory of international relations based on Malaysia or Costa Rica, Kenneth Walsh observed, as it would be to construct an economic theory of oligopolistic competition based on, a, on minor firms in a sector of the economy. The fates of all states and firms, he continued, in the system, uh, he continued in the system are affected much more by the acts and interactions of all the major, of the major ones than of the minor ones. When the Cold War ended, realism struggled, therefore, because it had little to say about the drivers of instability within minor states, in fact, not even within major states, such as the Soviet Union, let alone the role of non-state actors such as Al-Qaeda or Hezbollah. The inattention to civil wars was evident elsewhere. 
For example, theorists of internal political violence were more fascinated by, revol by revolutions, though these are comparatively rare, than by mutinies, secessionist movements, and ethnic conflicts. There had been much research into wars of national liberation in the 1960s, but these had been, this had been skewed by Cold War considerations, including the assumption that these wars were externally directed. A Cold War lens was also used when considering conflicts such as those in Angola or the Horn of Africa, because factions so often appeared as proxies for superpowers. Meanwhile, theories of economic development barely mentioned the importance of security. In the textbooks of economic development, the awkward features of many post-colonial post countries, from one-party rule to human rights abuses to civil wars, were considered as part of a painful early stage on the progressive road to development. Nor were the so-called scientific approaches of much help. The focus on the high end of international relations and warfare was reflected in the Correlates of War database. Little effort was, putting, was put into getting the measure of civil wars because it was difficult to count their casualties. In addition, the associated methodology required that all wars be broken down into dyads and then categorized as coming into one of a limited number of categories, interstate, extra-systemic, which could be colonial or else, interventions such as Iraq, or civil. This made it difficult to keep track of complex interactions involving many players working within and across state boundaries, and which change in character over time. Important events could be excluded because they did not quite fit. Thus, the Rwandan genocide in 1994 was not categorized as a civil war, although uh, it was, what happened just before that was a civil war, um, because the genocide came without any actual battles. It was just slaughter. Um, if there had been a bit of serious resistance, then Rwanda would have had to be moved from one database to another. Now, commenting on the 2006 field, field manual on counterinsurgency put together by the US Army and Marines after substantial consultations, including with academics, Stathis Kalivas uh, observed that it betrayed, quote, zero impact by political science research. This, he noted, was because the political scientists had largely attended to the causes, duration, and termination and aftermath of civil wars rather than their content. Um, in addition, he quotes, political scientists, including large N practitioners, have failed so far to produce startling results. He doubted that the, the most robust finding of the econometric literature, namely that poor countries face a higher risk of civil war, would have impressed or have been much used to the manual's writers. Up to 1990, of course, there was not that great demand for analyses of these conflicts because the established view in the West was that whatever unpleasantness uh, was going on within states, this was not their business. The UN Charter contained a clear prohibition against interference in another's internal affairs, and frankly, that suited most Western states because such interventions promised grief and risk without obvious benefit. It was events in Iraq in 1991 and then the former Yugoslavia that increasingly made it hard to avoid some response. The progressive engagement by Western countries in these conflicts 
especially after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and the interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq, provided an obvious entry point uh, for students of international relations. While theories of interstate war were based on the priority states attached to their security and the need on occasion for forceful action to preserve or create a balance of power, the early rationales for intervention focused instead on humanitarian distress. Whether the aftermath of the raids on the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps in Beirut in 1982, the desperate needs of the Somali people as warlords appropriate, appropriated their food supplies in 1991, or also in 1991, the plight of Kurds stuck on the border with Turkey, fleeing from Saddam, and then the start, also that year, of ethnic cleansing in the Balkans, the prompts for intervention tended to be images of extreme suffering and the knowledge that we could not truly say that we were powerless to do anything about it. It was the shock of the loss of innocent lives caused by 9-11 that in a more self-interested way prompted the war on terror. And then the cruel acts by Daesh that drew us back in tentatively into Iraq and Syria. It's the failure to address the brutality of the civil war in Syria over the past few years that many consider to be the greatest failure of Western foreign policy over these past few years, just as the inaction over Rwanda came to be a source of deep regret in the 1990s. And we can ask questions about whether it was really all about this or whether about the purity of motives, about the importance of natural resources or geographic proximity or risk of disruptive refugee flows when asking why certain tragedies are deemed actionable while others are not. But if we do approach these conflicts first and foremost in humanitarian terms, then that itself has consequences. Addressing the problem of war in terms of the suffering caused and justifying any intervention as protecting the vulnerable shifts the focus from causes to symptoms, from the politics to the violence. The rights and wrongs of a conflict can be reduced to the question of whose behaviour is the most outrageous. The focus encourages warring parties to stress their own vulnerability and victimhood. Judgment can shift with the latest atrocity and become totally confusing when yesterday's victims turn into, into today's villains. Ending the fighting may be the vital objective of the detached but caring observer with no stakes in the fight. But to others, with their own stakes in the conflict, what matters is who wins rather than who has the most brutal methods. The very term intervention makes it clear that we tend to be responding to something that is already well underway and has reached an alarming level of severity. Unlike the theories about what to do about interstate war, which were always largely about prevention, we are already into the realm of cure. And, anything we know, and everything we know about these conflicts tells us they are very difficult to cure because ceasefires and peace treaties are invariably fragile and too many countries with their societies and economies battered and bruised by years of fighting are caught in what Paul Collier has called the conflict trap. When peace comes, it is often partial and temporary. The stories of the Democratic Republic of the Congo and South Sudan are testaments to the persistence of these conflicts. 
The reasons for this lie in the fragility of the states and the remedies lie in reinforcing states, creating durable institutions, backing competent leadership, dealing with corruption and poor infrastructure. Progress in these areas can be difficult at the best of times, but even harder while a conflict is ongoing. The position is not helped by those fighters who've developed interest in the conflict, often leading, link, leading to links with criminality, especially the trafficking of people, drugs and arms. For some, war is very good for business. And they are reluctant to see it closed off by some peace agreement. The stress on the durability of conflicts is not the same as endorsing what has been called the ancient hatreds thesis. One early example of, of this thesis, a uh, particular genre of work, was Robert Kaplan's 1993 book, Balkan Ghosts, which described the current conflicts afflicting then uh, Croatia and Bosnia as emerging out of a region, quote, full of savage hatreds, leavened by poverty and alcoholism, emerging out of, quote, a morass of ethnically mixed villages in the mountains. Although Kaplan was adamant that this was not his intention, one effect was to reinforce the view that it was best not to try to get involved in sorting out these conflicts. President Clinton, for example, was said to have taken the lesson from Kaplan's book, quote, that these people had been killing each other in tribal and religious wars for centuries. This takes us right to the heart of the fear and loathing question. The challenge of state building is difficult under any circumstances. If historic Fear and loathing is the reason for conflict, is the temptation is to give up and succumb to fatalism. Now to play this down, um, when speaking of the origins of conflict, is not to ignore the polarisation and distrust across communities that can intensify the longer a conflict continues. There may not have been that much fear and loathing to start with, but there often is uh, not long into a conflict. But what I can say that the systematic investigation um, of, uh, on the origins of these conflicts shows that um, prior to these intercommunal uh, conflicts escalating, they usually did not display the most, more extreme levels of tension than other conflicts in which violence of that sort was avoided. Even when the fighting began, Whatever the impressions of neighbours killing neighbours, the numbers involved in the actual fighting were often usually only a tiny proportion of the adult male population. It's not so much a frenzy of nationalism, but rather, as was uh, John Mueller suggested, the actions of recently emp empowered and unpleased thugs. The victims were often moderates of the same grouping who opposed extremists, and even when communities had a long history of mutual antagonism, it still had to be explained why violence broke out between them at a particular time and the form it took. The thugs were empowered for a purpose. The problem was not so much mutual loathing welling up from within society as it was violence encouraged and developed at an elite level. Although the antecedents of the Bosnian conflict were long and complex, the origins of the 1990s wars lay in the instrumental use of nationalism by Slobodan Milosevic and his associates, 
the violence was not random, but deliberate. The scale, range and consistency of the methods used, observed James Gow, required significant coordination and planning. Events in Yugoslavia were difficult to understand without reference to the country's history, which provided the themes for the nationalist messages or the social structures which conditioned the response. But it was still politics that led to the country's devastation and those seeking to resolve the conflict had to make sense of this politics. Now, within this, uh, raises questions about the strategic value of targeting civilians and whether this was done because these civilians were hated or because there was a political purpose. The logic went back to the classics of revolutionary warfare, starting with the dependence of guerrilla groups on the local population. The most famous uh, formulation was that of Chinese leader Mao Zedong, who spoke of the people as being the water and the troops the fish who inhabit it. For those struggling with the rebellion, especially one moving beyond the point where it was possible to appeal to the loyalties of the people, the idea of draining the sea had some appeal. The civilian population was fixed while the militants were mobile. If only the civilians could be moved, the militants would be exposed. Such a strategy risked international condemnation and stored up trouble for the future, but for desperate governments, it could still make strategic sense. For example, Guatemala, in a war that began in the late 1970s, when the wide civilian support for guerrillas left the army floundering, um, in, uh, the, go the government vowed to, quote, dry up the human sea in which the guerrilla fish swim. The result was civilians were treated as though they were combatants. The killing was not accidental, um, not just abuses or excesses. Rather, according to Jennifer Shimmer, they represented a scientifically precise, sustained orchestration of a systematic, international, uh, intentional, massive campaign of extermination. In some areas, about a third of the local population was slaughtered, with about 750,000 killed in total. Another study of guerrilla, of, of guerrilla groups terrorizing civilians in Algeria during the 1990s saw the violence being driven not by radical ideology that justifies the extermination of a category of people, or by senseless bloodlust, bloodlust as many observers had suggested. Instead, it was calculated to push people away from supporting the government. There was therefore instrumentality to mass killings. There were ways of removing, there were, these were ways of removing political opponents, as in the purges undertaken by communist countries, or in removing hostile populations, especially when it was difficult to expel them in sufficient numbers, or as a means of intimidating civilian sources of support. The example that gained the, gained the most attention during the 2000s, and which was used to show that a harsh approach could be successful, was the Sri Lankan government's action against the Tamil Tigers after a long civil war in which both sides had used vicious tactics. After the conclusion of what were described as humanitarian operations in 2009, a Sri Lankan model was identified with the basic premise that, quote, terrorism has to be wiped out militarily and cannot be tackled politically. Among the eight fundamentals of victory 
were political will to eliminate the enemy, a readiness to tell the international community to go to hell when negotiations were proposed as an alternative, a refusal to negotiate because ceasefires had been used in the past by the enemy to get time to refresh and recuperate, and then a readiness to shut the world out, of, uh, out by maintaining silence about operations and regulating the media to make sure they did not re provide the reports of civilian casualties that might, might lead to more international pressure. Another uh, influential campaign was that waged by Russia in the province of Chechnya against secessionist rebels. From 1994 to 1996, Russians fought a hard and ultimately futile battle against secessionists. Settlement left the Chechen capital Grozny in secessionist hands, although without an agreement on any new constitutional settlement. In August 1999, with a new prime minister, Vladimir Putin, at the helm, the Russians decided that firm action now needed to be taken. This time, the Russian methods were unrelenting. Air raids followed by armoured columns. After a series of defeats in battle, the insurgents resorted to guerrilla tactics, but they suffered from internal divisions, largely between the Islamist and nationalist factions. Gradually, the resistance subsided with the occasional acts of terrorism. Now, there were a number of reasons for the success uh, of Russia second time round. And one of that I indicated was turning the conflict into more of an intra-Chechen war, engaging a local leadership who understood the country and were also able to take control, take control and deal ruthlessly with any residual opposition. A second fact, though, was an uncompromising use of firepower. In the first war, the Russians tried to take the city with tanks and infantry and then got caught up in urban warfare for which they were poorly prepared. In the second war, Grozny was battered with artillery and air power against which the defenders had no response. In September 2015, Russian forces intervened in Syria to keep Bashar Assad in power. Mark Galeotti described their tactics as implementing a lesson learned from, God, from Grozny. It, all war is terrible. Sometimes the art is to be the most terrible. In late 2016, after a ceasefire quickly broke down, Russian aircraft attacked an aid convoy bringing relief to the besieged city of Aleppo. As they moved to force the rebels out of the city, they worked to make life as difficult as possible for all inhabitants, including systematically bombing hospitals. Eventually, the city was evacuated by, the, um, by both residents and rebel fighters. The Russian air campaign underlined a point often neglected in the discussions of the impact of the developments of weapons of improved precision. They not only allow civilian sites to be easily avoided, they also allow civilian sites to be targeted more effectively. Now, such tactics leave their own legacies of fear and loathing. Analysis suggests that when attempted, they have mixed success because they can encourage resistance as well as suppress it. But within their own terms, at times they succeed. And this is an uncomfortable conclusion. In one meticulous piece of research, Jason Lyle demonstrated that when the Russians employed indiscriminate violence in Chechnya by shelling villages, the effect was to suppress the insurgency. It weakened their local organization and ability to deploy forces, showed that the insurgents couldn't protect their own people, caused division 
in their ranks. He found that in the aftermath of artillery strikes, there was a decrease in insurgent attacks when compared with nearly identical villages that had not been struck. What was very, this is an absolutely uh, meticulous piece of research, um, and what was striking was just how uncomfortable Lyle was with his own findings. Quote, this article clearly should not be read as endorsing the use of random violence against civilians as a policy instrument. Such actions are morally abhorrent and are rightly regarded as war crimes under both international law and Russia's own legal systems. It's very hard to come to the terms with the possibility that these tactics can at times work. And his reaction reflects the extent to which it has become a core part of our normative and legal framework that whatever the specific objectives of military action, care should be taken to keep down all casualties and especially those of civilians. But we must be honest with ourselves um, and remember um, that this strict discrimination upon which we now insist between combatants and non-combatants was a major departure from how we fought our wars in the past and a departure from what we had assumed to be the trend of modern warfare. In the past, it was understood, if regretted, uh, that wars would be won by whatever means necessary. And sometimes that didn't mean inflicting harm on civilian populations. The crime was to start a war. Those who aggressed should not be surprised if there were horrible consequences. A similar line developed with our own civil and colonial wars. Think of Sherman, think of the concentration camps in the Boer War. The view that at times populations must be treated harshly in the context of, um, developed in the context of the 19th century colonial campaigns. And even after the Second World War, Western powers could be brutal when countering insurgencies, whether the French in Algeria, the British in Kenya, or the Americans in Vietnam. But we now take the view that civilian slaughter is not only repulsive, but serves no military purpose. An important source of this view was the analysis of the effects of the great air raids of the Second World War, which suggested that bombing urban centres had limited strategic value. The key lessons were that societies absorbed punishment in preference to surrendering. And if innocents were killed, then populations would be turned against the perpetrators. In this way, the moral dilemmas were eased. A vicious and uncontained approach to war couldn't, would not only be reprehensible, but also counterproductive. The focus on nuclear weapons and the inaccuracy of power, firepower limited the immediate impact of this lesson. But the, with the development of more accurate weapons came the expectation that commanders could exercise an extraordinary amount of control. Western strategy moved towards a model of relatively civilised combat, professionally conducted by high-quality regular forces, using precision weapons to pick out combatants and spare non-combatants. If civilian deaths were in principle avoidable, then almost any examples risked an allegation of premeditated choice as much as poor intelligence or bad luck. The possibility of discretionary military conduct when used in discretionary wars of choice also had a, an impact um, on attitudes to our own casualties, to Western military casualties. When wars were fought on an industrial scale, when mass armies were pitched against each other and whole societies caught up in its conduct, suffering was both largely shared 
and anonymous. Levels of casualties, military as well as civilian, which in the past might have been deemed to be, in some general accounting, tolerable, now appear, because of the new situation we're in, as excessive or disproportionate. The idea that some lives are more dispensable than others, fighting competence more than innocent non-competence, anybody from the enemy side more than anybody from our side, has lost currency. Poignant images and harrowing personal stories have created a sort of democracy of casualty. Those killed, including one's own personnel, acquire equality as victims because, by and large, they're not personally responsible for the violence which has consumed them. With campaigns fought by specialist volunteer forces, individual deaths and injuries stand out more. Dwelling on larger strategic considerations can appear insensitive and, hardless, and heartless. For opponents of the West, this casualty intolerance encourages strategies that maximise pain. The attacks of 9-11 reflected Osama bin Laden's view that Western people were cowards and would want to avoid any further dealings with Muslim states as long as it was shown that this would cause severe hurt. What in fact was demonstrated that when the stakes in, uh, were increased, so did the risk-taking. But a relationship of sorts can be assumed between the stakes in a conflict, excuse me, between the stakes in a conflict and the human costs incurred. A people fighting for their very existence and way of life might accept terrible pain because they can see no alternative. If they give up, they are doomed anyway. A country intervening in another's quarrel will not be prepared to pay such a high price, pay high price even though the casualties may be confined to individuals who have volunteered to serve in the armed forces. The more futile the action, the harder it is to sustain public support. This is why it's now accepted um, that when we talk of interventions, we're looking for the smallest possible military footprint on the ground, because so much of what uh, we wish to do, we would wish to do from the air, rather than from the ground. But the corollary of that is, the smaller the ground presence, the less influence we can expect over the peacemaking and state-building processes. Lastly, international humanitarian law has focused increasingly on the rights of individuals over those of states. Whereas the laws of war were largely utilitarian and bowed in the direction of military necessity, human rights law has been much more rigorous on behalf of individuals takes their side even if the actions that were threatening them were legal under the customary laws of war. Uh, for Western armies, this shift has been problematic uh, and is now labelled lawfare to capture the way it is believed that strict rules on targeting and the need to avoid civilian hurt are used to hamper Western military operations. There's an example cited by Charles Dunlop, Dunlap, who's particularly pushed this view. Um, he cites a 2007 NATO statement in Afghanistan that promised that its forces would not, quote, fire on positions if they knew that civilians were nearby. And this, he argued, gave the Taliban comfort that if they chose their positions carefully, they would continue with their operations without interference. Now, it may be unwise to advertise these restrictions, but we have to accept properly that they're now part of Western military practice for strategic as well as moral reasons. 
the strategic logic of avoiding civilian casualties is actually still quite formidable. One Afghanistan study showed that when Western forces inflicted harm, their support went down and that of the Taliban went up. The reverse, however, was not the case. Taliban violence made little difference either the way. The Taliban had what the author described as a home team discount and were more likely to be forgiven. Where then does this leave us? The question of military intervention raises profound ethical and legal problems, as well as questions of strategy and political purpose. The approach I've taken to this question of fear and loathing, essentially to attacks on civilians, um, could be described as realist, as I've sought to explain that features of a conflict that reveal humanity at its most cruel and terrifying can still be explained by factors of power and interest. It warns, as Carr did almost 80 years ago, against assuming the inevitability of progress in human affairs or of assuming harmonies of interest where there is none. It also helps explain why the experience of intervention has been frustrating and why this is a wave that has, for the moment, rolled back. But it might return. The concerns that prompted on intervention in the 1990s have not gone away. And if we do find ourselves involved again, the lesson from my analysis is certainly not that we should be prepared to out-terrorise the terrorists. It will remain the case that on occasion, attacks on populations can turn a war in favour of the party prepared to be the most ruthless. But that this will always be a strategy born out of desperation, with benefits hard to sustain over the long term. The most important lesson is the importance of paying attention to the political context and to look, if possible, to questions of prevention rather than cure and to accept in this the, the importance of issues of power and interest. There are always going to be limits in what a, a foreign power can do in a country when they, the regime they are backing lacks legitimacy, is without popular support and is seen as intransigent. The problem with interventions is that they are a poor form of cure and not always a means of getting to the point where better cures in the form of effective state building are possible. Better to work harder in prevention, on prevention, to look for the signs of political breakdown and to act diplomatically and use economic means before the violence is taken, to, taken hold. By the time we are at the point of routine fear and loathing, it's probably too late. Thank you.